any story on any given day might give rise to a libel suit, that, you know, that really starts to shake the kind of very fundamental business aspects of what was becoming modern journalism. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershon, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. And together, we are professional media historians guiding you through our own drafts of history. This episode is sponsored by the College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. For more than a century, the college has educated students to relentlessly pursue the art, science, and integrity of stories. They are committed to following First Amendment principles in a digital-first environment as they prepare democracy's next generation. Transcripts of the show are available online at journalism-history.org podcast. Annie Oakley was livid in the summer of 1903. Oakley had become famous across the United States and Europe as the spunky sharpshooter in Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. And after a train accident, she decided to leave the touring circus and embark on an acting career. But then the same newspapers that had made her an international star ran stories that tarnished her public image. Sensational reports claimed that Oakley had been arrested in Chicago after committing a bizarre crime stealing a man's pants in order to buy cocaine. The news spread quickly via wire services and the telegraph. The problem was, none of it was true. In fact, the real Annie Oakley was living in New Jersey, and the woman who had been arrested in Chicago was an imposter. In the seven years that followed, Oakley went on a crusade to clear her name filing 55 libel suits against newspapers across the country. Oakley's confrontation with the news media reflected the conflict at the turn of the century between individuals concerned about losing control over their personal information and journalists who were relying on faster communications technology to report fresh and interesting news. On this episode of the Journalism History Podcast, we examine this tension between press freedom and privacy with Patrick File an associate professor of media law at the University of Nevada, and the author of Bad News Travels Fast, The Telegraph, Libel, and Press Freedom in the Progressive Era. Patrick, thanks first for joining us on the Journalism History Podcast to discuss your book today. So you published Bad News Travels Fast in 2019. And just to give our listeners an idea of the concept of this book, you examine a series of libel cases between 1890 and 1910, brought against hundreds of newspapers across the country for allegedly republishing false newswire reports. Libel, of course, allows people to sue for damages when their reputations might be harmed by false utterances, publications, or republications. That's part of what we're going to be getting into today. You describe how law and technology influence debates about privacy, the acceptable limits of journalism, those times when the media wants to satiate the public appetite for timely and entertaining stories, but then they fear maybe that sensationalism and accuracy could take over, and that could lead to expensive libel suits. 
So let's first analyze the title for your book, because I thought this was kind of interesting. The concept of bad news. As I was thinking about it, reading the book, it could be taken two different ways. I'm sure you intended it this way. But one is just bad news is a negative story about someone. This is a bad story about me. It's about an affair, a crime, something like that, that you explore in the book. But the other way, of course, is to view this as bad news reporting, accepting a wire service story without checking the facts. This is an example of bad journalism. So how do you define bad news? Yeah, well, both ways, pretty much the way that you just described it. And just as you said, it, it was kind of intended to kind of be meant both ways uh, through the title. And, and the basically that, that um, you know, bad news as a, you know, it, it looks bad for the person that it's about if it's, you know, kind of reporting a crime. Uh, reporting, um, you know, a, a, a business deal that's that's shady uh, or uh, a personal affair that's shady or something like that. Um, it's also bad for the person it's about if it's not true, right? Um, you know, it's it's bad news in the sense that it's um, it's uh, faulty, it's false, um, it's harmful, and and therefore, you know, a, a, it's a potentially defamatory, which is, of course, the book is is about libel. But just as you say, it's also bad for the journalists who report it. Um, and it's bad for the news organizations that uh, get nailed with these libel suits for passing it along. You know, bad news in a broader sense that sort of like the these stories and the legal, uh, uh, the cases that, that, that sort of they that they wrought was bad news for journalism in the sense that, you know, part of the broader problem that, that this kind of illustrated these these uh, serial libel suits, these libel syndicates, as the press uh, liked to call them at the time, uh, was, you know, this sort of sudden and fear-inducing new problem where, you know, every newspaper in the country published wire service news, right? They got, they got news from, of course, the Associated Press, but a handful of other competitors to the Associated Press. If kind of any of those stories could be considered potentially faulty, uh, or, you know, any story on any given day might give rise to a libel suit that, you know, that really starts to shake the kind of very fundamental, some, some of the very fundamental business aspects of what was becoming modern journalism um, at the turn of the 20th century. And so that's bad news, too. Um, so bad news for plaintiffs, bad news for the people that the story is about, but also potentially bad news for the journalism industry as well. And it's stunning when we're going to get into the actual stories that were reported here that led to the libel suits, just how bad some of this news was. Yeah. <laughs> um, as a former journalist myself and as a journalism professor, just reading what went down and like, how do they not check these facts? How do they just put this scurrilous stuff into the paper? Right. Um, so it, it'll be kind of interesting to go with it. And as you discuss in the book, obviously, a key part of your book is the technology of the age that you're writing about. The concept of bad news traveling fast took on new meaning with the inception of the telegraph in the 1850s. Its speed and scale made it the most powerful information distribution network ever created, as you describe, and telegraphs are carrying reports almost instantly from trusted wire services like the Associated Press, United Press Association, to newsrooms across the country. But those qualities also amplified the legal risk associated with spreading false stories of debauchery and corruption through news because the newspapers are rushing wire stories into print, usually without any independent verification of the facts in those wire stories. And that became a routine integral part of the business. No one's even questioning it. And by the late 1800s, the era that you're really focusing on here, Americans had become more mobile geographically and socially. They were becoming maybe more concerned about their privacy and their reputations, worried about whether either their close neighbors or even distant strangers, as you described them, saw them as honest and virtuous. 
So how did the Telegraph specifically give rise to the traveling fast element of that bad news? Yeah. So the, the central factor here is timeliness, right? That, that you know, prior to the, the Telegraph and, and certainly, you know, subsequent to the Telegraph being the kind of main means of, uh, of information and, and news exchange across the country, you know, news has to be timely. That's, that's a kind of essential quality of it. And the, mo- the more timely, the better. And of course, as uh, news uh, publishers and, and newspapers, you know, grow at the, at the, in the mid part and late part of the 19th century into these large money-making enterprises, um, you know, those news values become business values, right? And so you need to be timely. You need to be fast. You need to be the, beat the competition. And of course, the telegraph enables that, right, to kind of exchange information and news very quickly, get it in the paper that day or the following day, no matter where it occurs across the country. And just as you say, um, that comes into conflict with some basic journalistic values about, you know, verification of facts um, and things like that. It also, again, when you're dealing with, you know, this um, uh, desire, really a business imperative to kind of meet the public with sensational, uh, uh, salacious and interesting news, you know, the human interest story of the turn of the 20th century. You know, some of that may not be, uh, uh, strictly speaking, accurate. Uh, some of it may not be fully vetted because, again, of the timeliness element. And so all those kinds of things kind of come together uh, when we're trying to get, you know, uh, interesting, uh, fascinating and salacious news to the public uh, quickly through the telegraph. Um, and, and again, the, the, you know, this is a problem of speed, but it's also one of scale. Uh, you know, and so you have newspapers all across the country reporting essentially the same stories. Um, and so that the way that that works, I, I think the Tyndale Palmer story, we, we may get into that in a little bit more detail, is probably the kind of most emblematic of, of this, where you have this otherwise basically anonymous uh, businessman. But in theory, he could be doing business anywhere in the country. Uh, the guy was born in Ohio, grew up in Ohio, spent some time living in Southeast Iowa, uh, spent some time living in uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul, um, and and I believe you know traveled through New York uh, a little bit as well. And so you know wherever his business took him, he went. And if people were reading in the newspaper either before he arrived or while he was there doing business that he was a shady businessman, then you know that's a problem for him. Um, this was this was new, right? And you know the the post Civil War era, people were a little bit more you know socially mobile. Um, you know, people like Tyndall Palmer could kind of move up the, the, the class ranks by, you know, conducting business, but they could also, uh, you know, move around the country and, and do business here and there and, and, you know, kind of travel around as, as they chose. And if newspapers, wherever they may land, were publishing false and harmful information about them, um, you know, that was a problem. Whereas, you know, the Tyndale Palmer of, you know, decades uh, before, you know, had, would probably have pretty much stayed more or less in the same place. And so, you know, if a newspaper halfway across the country was was reporting, you know, uh, uh, false and harmful information about him, uh, he may not have cared. He may not have known. And so, you know, again, I think it, there, there may be a tendency to read this through the kind of the, the lens of the press and say, well, this is just a terrible thing. And, you know, these people were targeting uh, targeting journalists and targeting good journalism and just trying to harm newspapers and put them out of business. But, you know, it's a legitimate concern for somebody, somebody like Tyndale Palmer, um, where, you know, this is a false and harmful story and, and may in limit his ability to do business. And, you know, and it's perfectly valid for him to go, you know, town to town, 
uh, state to state and and try to uh, you know at least uh, get a retraction, if not you know uh, rightfully sue these newspapers for harming his reputation. Um, so that's the kind of the scale and the speed part, I think, of the of the travels fast. Well, and your book certainly shows that these figures are sympathetic who are suing for libel. I mean, they were wronged. And so we kind of see in the Tyndale Palmer story, which we're going to get into, we'll go through them in chronological order as you do in the book, but uh, that these, maybe a lot of our listeners are journalists or more sympathetic to the views of journalists. And so we view libel as a deterrent, someone trying to stop good journalism based on, you know, maybe their concept of what reality was that isn't really what was the true that the journalists were reporting. But here uh, we see that the journalists were really just not practicing correct morals or good process. So yeah, let's get into some of those stories, just mind boggling ones. The first one that you tell in the book is about these wealthy socialites, Juliet Smith and Edward Rutherford. So in the summer of 1890, Smith boards a train in Toronto bound for New York City to meet her husband. He was a wealthy and well-known Canadian merchant named John C. Smith. And she's traveling with a friend of the family, Edward Rutherford. And her husband knew about this. In fact, the two men had planned this trip together. And when the train arrived in New York, Rutherford uh, arrived at Grand Central Station to meet them. You know, he was there to greet them when they come off the train. But the United Press Association paints a very different picture of these interactions between Mrs. Smith and Mr. Rutherford. The correspondent reports that they had absconded from Toronto with plans to elope in New York. And Mr. Smith had learned of their plan, and he hurries there to confront them. The New York Evening Sun runs the headline, Did She Go With a Handsomer Man? Reported sensational elopement in Canadian high life. And of course, this is all false. They end up suing newspapers in New York and Chicago over these allegations of an illicit love affair. So what can you tell us about this particular libel suit? And then the news industry formulates what becomes known as the wire service defense out of this case. So what can you tell us about that? Yeah. So um, just as you said, you know, it was this kind of salacious, the salacious story. Uh, yeah, I love that headline. Did she go with the handsomer man? Um, <laughs> right. You know, I mean, the, the, the answer to that implied by the question. And so and it's, you know, again, one of these things where, you know, as you're doing the research and reading this stuff, I mean, it's hard to not find like immediate resonance with the present day around, you know, reporting on these people who are, you know, again, you know, Canadian high life. This is just, you know, folks who are kind of famous for, for, for being rich and that's about it. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's, it's a kind of irresistible story once you see it come over uh, the wire. And, you know, to, to get to the point of the, of the wire service defense, this is, you know, the, the, the newspapers that were sued by and large, um, you know, their argument that, that, uh, that they made in court was that we, you know, if we, if our kind of full-time job, in addition to reporting in news, you know, reporting news for ourselves, uh, that, you know, we send our own reporters out to gather and, and verify and edit and put in the newspaper. In addition to that, we have to verify and edit every piece of wire service news that we get, which in many cases, you know, media historians will know in this era was as much as half the newspaper in, in, you know, smaller areas and in smaller towns and rural, rural newspapers, it would be half or more of the newspaper. Um, you know, it's just not viable as a, from a business standpoint to, to be verifying both the news that you're reporting originally, as well as the wire service news that's coming in. Uh, but the way the law looked at it was essentially that, you know, did you publish this? Is it false? Did it harm their reputation? If the answer is yes to all three of those questions, then that's it. Um, and the only question at that point is whether the jury agrees that you should get $5, $5,000 or $50,000. Um, and so that, 
that puts the news uh, organizations and newspapers in a really difficult spot. And so that was why they raised this, this defense. They said, you know, there has to be a sort of exception that allows us to uh, uh, at least diminish the damages that are owed in a libel case that's based on a wire service story. By and large, you know, and, th- and this is, you know, something I had to kind of struggle with and, and make sense of uh, myself. And, it, you know, again, libel law is extremely tricky to kind of work out. It's, you know, it to this day is is very uh, uh, nuanced and, and, and it's, you know, just, and, and even the doctrine of it doesn't make a lot of sense a lot of the time. And so, um, it wasn't that the news organizations were arguing, you know, we shouldn't be responsible. We shouldn't be held liable for, you know, printing these these harmful falsehoods, but rather that our liability uh, in terms of damages should be diminished because the fault is lower, right? Uh, the strict liability doctrine was essentially what the courts were applying and had been applying uh, for decades, which essentially said, you know, as I say, you know, it, did you publish it? Is it false? Did it harm their reputation? Okay, well, then you're guilty. That's all there is to it. There's no interrogation as to sort of how did you get to this place? How much fault was there on your part? And the, the newspapers are saying, you know, we should we should ask that question. We should be able to, to argue that, you know, we would be more at fault if this was our own own reporter uh, going out and gathering this information originally and, you know, falsely reporting it or, you know, of course, maliciously and, and purposefully trying to harm this person's reputation. But not only was this an accident, but as it, it was an accident that, you know, it would be very difficult for us to prevent from happening. And, you know, while meeting the need of the public to have information about what's going on uh, around the country, in addition to what's going on in our community. And so that was the kind of birth of this wire service defense. I'm sure we'll talk about it, but, you know, they didn't have a great deal of success. This was not something where, you know, judges sat down and said, aha, that's, you know, that's a great idea, newspaper lawyer. I'll, I'll you know, happily take that into consideration and, and diminish your damages however much you would like. I mean, courts were extremely leery. Judges were extremely leery of this sort of new interpretation based on, you know, new ideas about what news ought to be, whether, you know, whether the story about the salacious elopement of uh, members of the Canadian high life even belongs in the newspaper. Um, and that's, you know, that's where this kind of, you know, culture clash, this this question about, you know, what exactly makes a good, you know, or worthy news report in the first place um, starts to get into this as well. And just to follow up there then, how did that case end up? Uh, Smith and Rutherford mostly won, uh, their cases. And, and for the most, you know, the, the damages would end up getting kind of debated. It's, it's kind of similar today where, you know, what you do, the way that libel law works is you sue for as much as you can possibly, uh, claim. I mean, we'll see the news, you know, news reports about this from time to time where, you know, a person is suing a news, uh, news organization for $50 million. Um, and it's essentially because you've got to set a high bar in order for, you know, the, the, um, uh, if if you sue for a small amount, you can never get more than that. And so even if the you know damages get sort of lowered, you'll still end up with you know a large amount that way. Um, you still, of course, have to prove that you know that that you know that there was harm, that you that there was loss. Um, and so Smith and Rutherford, in their cases, my recollection is that they won in the thousands of dollars in several cases. I would say, kind of financially, they were in some ways probably the most successful of the of the three cases, three series of cases um, in the book. Uh, I guess, you know, to put it in kind of like sports term, they had sports terms, they had sort of like the highest percentage, uh, winning percentage on the cases uh, that they filed and the, and the largest amount of damages that they won. So this was this first kind of, you know, I mean, I would see it um, in, looking back at it, you know, as a historian is like, this is the shot across the bow. This is the sort of 
you know, an incident where um, you, there were maybe a dozen-ish cases filed, not a ton, not a huge uh, libel syndicate like we'll see with, with Tyndale Palmer and even Annie Oakley. But, uh, but you know, th- this, this, they, they sued in multiple places in New York and as well as, well as in Chicago, um, and they were fairly successful. So it was kind of this warning sign to news organizations, you know, if you're publishing faulty, false defamatory stories, even if it involves people that, you know, you've never heard of before publishing this story, that doesn't mean that you're kind of absolved uh, and that you're going to avoid a libel suit. Mm -hmm. And just seeing the permutations of law now having to even define a wire service defense, something that didn't really exist maybe uh, before the telegraph didn't need to be discussed in this way. So you've mentioned Tyndale Palmer a few times. So we go from Smith and Rutherford in the summer of 1890 to then two years later, October of 1892, United Press Association is added again. They report that this businessman, Tyndale Palmer, who worked for a light company, had been sent to Brazil to negotiate the sale of patent rights for a new light bulb. And the story says that he goes to Rio de Janeiro, he sells the patent for $510,000, but he doesn't tell this to his employer. He says it only sold for 70000 And then he splits the difference with a local hotel owner. Obviously, a shocking tale of international business fraud pocketing $440,000. It's also untrue. In fact, Palmer was an entrepreneur and businessman whose work life, as you describe in the book, was in tune with the social and geographic mobility of the turn of the 20th century. He wasn't doing anything particularly wrong here. Over the next 10 years, Palmer pursued lawsuits against hundreds of newspapers for printing the false allegations. And you've brought this up a few times so far. The trade public, one trade publication calls the systemic approach to litigation, the greatest libel syndicate of the age, almost like it's becoming a business pursuit. Just suing somebody for libel becomes its own independent hobby and business. But this case ends up playing a lot differently than Smith and Rufford. So how did this go? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I just every time I kind of reread and think about that story, like what newspaper could have possibly resisted this? Right. Um, and, and again, because partly because it's just so emblematic of, of you know, the world and, and of uh, kind of American culture and business culture at this time. Um, so what was interesting and, and sort of different about this was um, the, you know, so a couple of big differences. Palmer, indeed, you know, kind of turns this into a business venture. He uh, uh, gets a, an attorney from Philadelphia, uh, goes around and they send letters to basically every newspaper they can possibly find that, uh, that, that published this story. They demand a retraction and essentially say, you know, uh, uh, you can, you know, you can, you can offer us uh, payment, uh, in response, you know, in, in, for, for, um, harming us, uh, or harming, uh, Palmer, uh, and, or I'm going to come sue you. Um, and he, he, you know, sort of very systematically goes around and sues newspapers. Um, he, he seems to focus, from what I can tell, on places that he's lived or and or done business. Um, as I mentioned, you know, uh, grew up in uh, in Ohio, uh, lived in Iowa uh, for a time, which was very interesting because he actually had some connections to places that I grew up very close to where I grew up in in Southeast Iowa, uh, which is always kind of an interesting thing for uh, you know it's a obviously writing about it, but also getting to go and do research and you know in uh, in local courthouses in in towns near where I grew up, which was sort of interesting. Um, in Minnesota, uh, upstate New York, um, and then in New York City is is primarily where he focuses these lawsuits. But there are others in other states. 
um, such that the at least the way the trade press describes it is he's essentially do it filing test cases. So he'll you know file a case in a state, see what happens, see if it you know if it goes anywhere, if if a jury you know kind of is willing to award him uh, 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 damages, and if it if it's a su- successful case, then he'll file more in that state. Um, so the scale is much larger than what Smith and Rutherford did. Um, but then what's also interesting is he doesn't end up uh, kind of raking in the damage uh, damage amounts that uh, Smith and Rutherford did. Uh, in most cases, he's awarded nominal damages, which, which is basically a legal term for kind of the minimum amount. Um, in some cases, you know, it, it varies from place to place, but it's like 25 cents or $1.75 or something like this. You know, one newspaper points out that it's, you know, isn't, he, you know, what, what he uh, wins in damages isn't sufficient uh, to pay for his, you know, his travel and board in town while he's there uh, uh, to testify in the case. Um, and, you know, it's, it's always difficult to know without kind of explicit, you know, I, I, what we can't do is go back and like interview the, the jurors to find out what it was that, you know, made you know, tip the scales in this case and made it somehow different from uh, the Smith and Rutherford case. Um, but I mean, you know, there are a couple ways to think about it. In some ways, it was that, you know, I think uh, Smith and Rutherford in some ways, I think, you know, sued in places uh, where they were maybe a little bit possibly better known. It could also be that the jurors were more offended by the idea of this false claim of elopement and, you know, a marital affair than they were about a a, a business deal, um, you know, a kind of phony business deal and money laundering and these kinds of things um, and stealing from a, a large, uh, you know, a, a, a light bulb factory or light bulb uh, producer, I guess. So, um, you know, there are a couple ways to think about why the jurors, uh, uh, you know, kind of um, might have awarded smaller damages. It could also be that the um, that the wire service defense was kind of, although maybe not necessarily catching on with judges, uh, jurors could have been open to that idea a little bit more. Um, also, the possibility is this, this kind of a, a second line of defense that the that the uh, news organizations were raising uh, in the libel syndicate defense, which was essentially that you know this you know jurors should be able to see the fact that this person is going around you know and has essentially turned this uh, this um, uh, crusade, this legal crusade, in, into a new business um, where he's just going around and suing newspaper after newspaper after newspaper. Um, and, and jurors sort of saying, well, we're not going to go along with that. So ultimately, like, you know, yes, the, the newspaper loses and Palmer wins because, again, with strict, a strict liability approach and, and, you know, no wire service defense explicitly in the law, no libel syndicate defense explicitly in the law, you would say, well, you know, did, he, did the newspaper publish it? Yes. Was it false? Yes. Did it harm his reputation? Yes. All true. However, um, we don't see that he was harmed in some, you know, a terrible way. And so instead of the $50,000 or the $15,000 that he's claiming in damages, we're going to award him a buck 50, you know, say you legally, you are the winner of this case, um, but we're not going to award you a big pile of damages. And so, you know, Palmer ultimately, again, and from the standpoint of like, was this good business? Probably not. Um, he wasn't terribly successful. Um, you know, I, I think if, if you run the numbers, he, you know, you won a couple of cases and a, a couple of large uh, judgments, uh, the other uh, part of this is that a lot of a fair number of newspapers settle with him out of court, so they they take him up on that offer when they you know get the letter that says 
you know, here's your here's your option. You can pay me five hundred dollars. You know, send me a check, or I'll come and sue you for fifty thousand um, dollars. A fair number of newspapers settle the cases, and so that again kind of gives him presumably enough money to kind of keep this thing going for a little bit. But it certainly doesn't enrich him in any kind of meaningful way. You know, such that he can kind of quit his job and just become a full time libel plaintiff. Well, I imagine also with any lawsuit and certainly in a libel case, you risk that you're suing somebody and then that only highlights, again, the original false claims that were made against you in the newspaper story. So even if he's winning some of these cases, maybe there is some people who are going to do business with him and then they see reports of this like, you know what, why don't I go with some other person, uh, hire somebody else or go into business with another person? That could be right. You know, well, and, and, and news organizations do kind of play that card of you know the court of public opinion as well. I mean, you see it in some of the coverage. You know, there's sort of two ways that news newspapers go about this. Uh, and, and go about kind of writing about libel generally um, that you can see, you know, one that's sort of interesting is in many cases, they downplay it. Uh, they, they don't they don't cover libel cases, particularly libel cases against newspapers. Uh, in one case or in a couple of cases, there are actually um, in larger sort of mid-sized cities. Um, I want to say it's Detroit. I'd have to get the book out and remember exactly. Um, and possibly also Cincinnati, where a handful of newspapers get together and say, you know, we're not going to publish news of libel suits um, against any of the newspapers in town, because all that does is encourage people to file more libel suits. So, which of course poses an interesting problem for those of us doing this historical research, because it's like, well, you know, the, the legal records are spotty, the, uh, particularly if it doesn't ever get appealed, um, you know, if this only kind of exists at the trial court level, you, you know, it's hard to find those, uh, uh, those records. Um, and if it's not in, you know, the newspapers, then then how do we find out about these things? And a couple of people have obviously done this kind of work and, and struggled with that. Um, the other way that they go about it is, you know, they again they kind of litigate a little bit in the public, uh, in the court of public opinion, and they they write about these these cases and they say, you know, there's there's this guy who's he was going around suing newspapers, and we're about to see him in our town too. And you know, they essentially explain their case where, you know. Listen, public, if you like, uh, you know, good uh, news, sort of news from all across the country that's interesting um, and that's delivered in a timely fashion uh, that comes from the wire services, then this is a thing that might happen sometimes. And, and you know, we're we're of the opinion that it was a harmless mistake. We feel bad for Mr. Palmer, but, you know, ultimately we don't feel like we're at fault to the tune of, you know, $15,000 or however much he's suing us for. Um, and which, you know, of course, what's interesting about that is that, you know, who are they writing to, but their potential jurors, um, in these cases. Right. And so, you know, that's another tack that they would take is, is, you know, not only does Palmer kind of potentially risk further harm to his reputation as this kind of, uh, guy, you know, this sort of shyster who's going around and suing all these newspapers and, and trying to use the law, you know, in, in this, um, in this way that, you know, enriches him and, and harms a free press, but also, you know, the, the newspapers, as, as they report about this, literally are, you know, potentially catching the eyes and ears of potential jurors. Um, now, obviously, you know, there's uh, there's, you know, processes in, in courts that that so that you can you know get a, a fair jury. And so it's not like you're necessarily going to get necessarily going to impanel a jury that's going to sit there and, and all just kind of look down their noses at Tyndale Palmer and and, and you know, kick him out of the courtroom. But uh, but you know that's the sort of this this um, kind of court of public opinion approach to to reporting on these cases was sort of an interesting aspect of the Palmer cases as well. 
And then about a decade after Palmer, we have the case that is maybe involving the most prominent figure in your book. Last one we'll discuss here, the world-famous entertainer Annie Oakley, a sharpshooter who appeared in Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. Our listeners probably know her best as the inspiration for the Broadway musical Annie Get Your Gun. And in August of 1903, newspapers across the United States publish a story that describes how Oakley had turned up in a Chicago courtroom, drug-addicted and destitute. She's accused of stealing a man's pants in order to buy cocaine. The Scranton Truth reports, the striking beauty of the woman whom the crowds at the World's Fair admired is gone. But this story, like the others we've been discussing, was completely false. The arrested woman was not Annie Oakley, but an imposter who had toured the country claiming to be the famous Annie Oakley. The real Annie Oakley was vacationing in New Jersey at the time of this incident. The newspapers apologized and retracted the stories, but Oakley argued the damage was already done. She filed 55 libel lawsuits over the next seven years. So this trailblazing female entertainer, one of the first true international superstars, she's relying on positive news coverage. She has a different kind of relationship with the news media than the other figures we've discussed who were pretty anonymous. Maybe, okay, in the case of you know Smith and Rutherford, there are people who are getting some public attention, but they're not really relying on that to get a frenzy of people to go to these events. And now she's embroiled in this acrimonious legal fight because of this dubious reported debauchery. Um, so- what can you tell us about this case of Annie Oakley? Yeah, um, that's exactly right. And this is, you know, I mean, this this is this is career stuff for her, right? This this is, you know, her her reputation is her career. Um, is, is is Annie Oakley? She is a celebrity, um, obviously one who with with great talent and ability that she has, you know, spun into uh, again international fame, right? She went over to Europe and spent a year or two over there, um, you know, with with uh, Wild Bill's uh, um, Wild West show. Uh, uh, and the you know and 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 you know kind of meeting and greeting royalty and doing all these kinds of things and and you know, she very much relies on uh, on positive uh, news coverage. Um, let's just pause also for a moment to like the to to appreciate again like for those of us who write about history and media history like just the great like story here. I mean, I just, again, like there were a couple times when doing this research where my jaw is just on the floor where it's like, so the story was the report is she stole a man's pants in order to buy cocaine. Is this, am I getting this correct? You know, and again, so it's like, if you're public, if you're, you know, you see this story come across the wire, you're like, oh yeah, that's, I mean, that's front front page right there. Like that's really interesting uh, and shocking news. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, and, and then of course there's other things like the fact that, you know, it's a false story that's published in the Scranton truth. So it's like, there's lots of opportunities for wordplay as a writer here too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tried not to ham that up too much in the book, <laughs> but yeah. So, um, I mean, I, so a couple things with, with this case, um, indeed, you know, so the one thing is that, that, the, 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 I don't want to say like the sort of the die is cast a little bit. Uh, you know, we're now in sort of round three of of these libel syndicates, of these serial libel cases. We had the sort of shot across the bow with the Smith and Rutherford cases. We had the kind of very widespread, um, you know, kind of uh, turning it into a business model of Tyndale Palmer, of just suing hundreds of papers across the country. Um, and now we have the sort of added twist of someone who really does rely on, you know, is not an anonymous person, does rely on positive news coverage. Um and uh, she, yeah, she, she's really hurt by this. I mean, also, like, you know, thankfully, 
due to her prominence, we have you know a little bit more biographical you know uh, literature about Annie Oakley, so I could learn a little bit more about kind of how she actually felt and how she responded. You know, we have her letters, we have things that she did, uh, you know, things that she wrote, and 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 uh, and we have a little bit more documentary evidence of how she felt as a as a, a, a as a consequence of these uh, news stories. Um, she sues for many tens of thousands of dollars in most cases. I think she sued for generally more than most uh, or more than the, the other plaintiffs across the board. Uh, she also uh, tends to uh, win a little bit more. Um, the news stories about her cases often kind of talk about her in the courtroom um, and, and, you know, this, this sort of very sympathetic figure on the stand, you know, I mean, you imagine, you know, in your small town or medium sized town, you know, Annie Oakley arrives in town to, to, you know, pursue this libel suit and the coverage in the courtroom. And, you know, it's a little bit more, I think of a media circus uh, as well. And so the other thing about this, I think, and, and, you know, this too, for the case of, um, uh, of uh, Juliet Smith is the role of gender in these cases as well. And how, you know, particularly for Juliet Smith, I mean, you know, a woman at the turn of the 20th century, often, you know, her sort of belief, the, the sort of public view of her or sort of even kind of community view of her as chaste uh, is, is, you know, is, is very significant um, and is an important part of kind of how, uh, you know, the public or, or uh, sort of non-private image of, of a woman in this society. And so uh, Oakley kind of this is, you know, that on steroids as well, a big part of who she, you know, she, she has to be seen as not a crass person. She has to be seen as, you know, a person of high class. Um, and so that is, you know, very important part of her public image as well and, and, a, and a basis for these lawsuits. Um, and so this, you know, in, in some ways, I think the, the trade press reports on this as being sort of like a perfect storm where you have the kind of uh, false and harmful personal details about someone uh, it's you know we're not talking about a you know a, a shady business deal. We're talking about someone who's drug addicted and destitute uh, when they really weren't. Um, it's it's uh, it's it, we have a female protagonist, a female plaintiff um, who again you know is not just uh, uh, sort of dependent on an image, a public image of being chased, but also a, a very public image of being chased. Right? I mean that's this you know the, again she's she's an international superstar. She's kind of one of our earliest sort of uh, uh, gigantic celebrities that everybody knows, and she's got you know a lot more resources to file these lawsuits. Uh, uh, than does, um, uh, uh, you know, than did perhaps uh, Smith and Rutherford and then did Palmer. And so, you know, you have this kind of well-resourced and highly motivated uh, uh, plaintiff that is, you know, kind of especially scary uh, to the news media who are, you know, uh, who, again, you know, published this story that was almost irresistible, right? So it's like, what newspaper is going to, is going to, you know, deny this story? What newspaper that relies on wire service news is going to actually, you know, have the resources to, to check it, to, to verify that it's actually true? Um, and then, you know, what newspaper then is not at risk, therefore, of, of you know, getting hit with one of these uh, lawsuits? Again, not, not due to their own uh, um, malice or, you know, intention to harm her reputation, but, but you know, it's an accident. Um, and so they're not claiming that they didn't do it. They're not claiming that it, you know, that it legally that they should be absolved, uh, but rather that they shouldn't be on the hook for, you know, essentially a damage award that for many newspapers could, you know, basically put them out of business. I think your book also highlights as we then look at the evolution of libel law and the way that 
the public views the media today, maybe gets into how the press back then had a better reputation generally, or just people were more excited about these new forms of technology, like the Telegraph that was bringing them news quickly. And they were relying so much on journalists to bring them information in an era where we didn't have the internet and TV and radio and all of those sorts of things. Um, and that now maybe the public perception has changed. And so I don't know if the public would be quite so understanding of some of these foibles of the press as they might've been at that time. And that kind of gets into one of these final questions that I want to ask you. News travels even faster today than in the era of the telegraph, of course, on social media and the internet. You were researching this book. It was published in 2019. So you're researching at a time at the rise of bad news and fake news on social media, especially. I imagine this was around the time that Donald Trump was campaigning and then assuming the presidency and he's threatening libel suits and that he's going to change libel law so that it open it up to more of these kinds of suits. And of course, he's always saying fake news. And I, you know, there's the kind of connection between what's bad news and fake news, which you could argue that a lot of these stories, right? What was reported about Annie Oakley was fake news, the right. original definition of fake news. Yeah, almost truer, truer version of it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then we've seen in the last few years, bad and fake news about the spread of the coronavirus. And can you get ill from the vaccine and all of these kinds of controversial questions that have risen? So now that we're looking at your topic in that context, what do you think a contemporary audience can learn from what happened in these libel suits and the kind of evolution to, to bring us up to today and how bad new news is traveling even faster? So I, so I think, I mean, one thing that we uh, can think about, and this is sort of at the kind of conceptual framework level of, of the book here, is thinking about the way that um, what James Carey called the idea of a report. Um, and, and kind of what, what news is supposed to be and what, what sort of how that is socially constructed, how it's socially debated and contested. Um, you know, this is kind of a historian's answer, but I think part of what the book tells us is that we have to pay attention to how that evolves and, and, and understand and appreciate that that's, that that is, you know, something that isn't set in stone. Um, that, that, you know, the idea of what is bad news and what is good news is something that's evolving. And it's dependent on certainly, you know, big and powerful institutions like politicians and politics, as well as, uh, uh, you know, journalistic institutions, news organizations at the time, of course, newspapers. And now they're, you know, as you say, we've got a much more diverse uh, kind of uh, institutional landscape that make up, you know, the news media, as it were. Um, so that's part of it. I think that just sort of thinking about the the way that we are constantly defining and redefining, you know, what is good news, what is bad news, and what is news, period, right? Like what makes an acceptable report? That's what was to be partly being debated in these cases, right? You've got judges explicitly, juries implicitly signaling like, you know, what is an acceptable news report? Um, that it, that it's less acceptable to report on, you know, false foibles of Annie Oakley, of uh, you know this uh, a potential um, uh, a romantic liaison between a couple of uh, members of Canadian high life that's that's very unacceptable um, and that's reflected in how these cases played out um, it's it's less unacceptable or more acceptable that uh, the story about Tyndale Palmer and so and that's reflected in in uh, in how those cases played out and the point is that that's you know socially contested. And 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 uh, socially, you know, uh, constituted, but it's also 
um, something that that happens through the law, and we can see, you know, look at the law, and, and indeed, you know, so some of the, the conversation around uh, uh, opening up libel law or changing libel law or re uh, reexamining some of the fundamental principles that we've gotten from uh, uh, New York Times versus Sullivan, uh, you know, that again, it's it's you know, those are those are concepts that are that are determined through society and through law. Um, and, and so I think that that's, you know, understanding this, you know, the, the, the period that I'm writing about can help us kind of re- reflect a little bit on what we're currently experiencing. Um, the other thing I think is, and this comes out in the chapter about, uh, that we didn't really get into too much, but, but talks about the, um, the press's response to this problem through pushing for retraction statutes, which essentially allowed uh, you know, allowed for a wire service type of defense, allowed for a defense against these serial libel suits, where a newspaper uh, could could essentially say, listen, you know, we, we have to be able to rely on the wire services to publish interesting and important news across the country. If we're going to, you know, be under threat of getting a libel suit every time we pi- publish a wire service story, we won't do that. We won't publish those stories. And the public will lose because of that, because there'll be less news uh, for them to read, and that's bad, right? That's a, that's a, that's a, that you know creates an uninformed public, and so the news organizations got together in their professional associations. They lobbied hard. They said, "We're losing in the courts. Maybe we can win in the legislatures." And seventeen legislatures passed these retraction statutes. And so, you know, so something we can think about today is like, well, what institutions like the news news media press associations at that time are helping to define this landscape today, right? Does the fact that the institutional press, the traditional, at least the you know, uh, newspaper press, um, is not nearly as powerful, as well-resourced, um, and as well-organized as it was perhaps then, and certainly as it became through the 20th century, how is that going to play out when it comes to this redefinition, this potential redefinition of libel, this kind of changing or opening up of libel law, if that's something that's that's bound to happen, could we expect the press to step up and and kind of you know uh, uh, fight it through legislatures or fight it through the courts in the same way that they would have at the turn of the 20th century and in the same way that they did kind of leading up into uh, New York Times versus Sullivan as as you know most recently and most notably uh, uh, Amy Edmondson has written about in the cases leading up to then right that the it's it's important that these you know uh, powerful institutions and organizations play a role. Um, and, and so thinking about, you know, who's defining these fundamental concepts of freedom of the press, what institutions, what organizations, what people, um, you know, that's that's something I think that we can think about, you know, look at the book and say, well, that's that's how it played out then. How might we expect it to play out now? I think that's another, you know, a good kind of historical type of question to ask. And it's constantly evolving and we're going to be seeing a lot of new libel suits, I'm sure, that will come out and then new technology that will change. How fa- Is it going to be possible that somehow even more instantly, I don't know, through some new technology that libel can be done instantaneously? Um, I'm sure it's going to you know happen. But as we wrap up today's episode, I want to pose a question to you that we ask all of our guests to close the Journalism History podcast. Why does journalism history matter? I think I, I may have laid out a pretty good answer in the last uh, in, in the last question. And I, and I think, you know, to kind of twist your question around a little bit, I mean, I think it's an argument for why journalism history and uh, uh, the legal history of journalism matters is because these things are very interconnected, right? The way that we define what journalism is evolves over time. And so if we could look at and kind of understand how that has evolved over time, then we can understand kind of where we are and where we're going. 
Um, you know, history tells a story not about the past, but about the present. Um, but, you know, that's a legal question as well, right? We, we define what journalism is. We define what is good journalism and bad journalism. We define what is good news and what is bad news in the courts and in legislatures. These are policy questions. These are questions that get litigated in the courts. And it's certainly something that news organizations think about, right? So if we can argue that news organizations play a really important role in defining what journalism is, um, then they're thinking very hard about what, you know, what's going to get them sued and what is not going to get them sued or what's going to win in a case and not going to win in a case or what the legislatures are willing to protect or not protect as acts of journalism. So those two things are, are completely intertwined. And so that matters a great deal for how we understand some of these more fundamental concepts like freedom of the press, right? The, if the press plays a key role in defining what freedom of the press is, both from a practical and a principled standpoint, um, then that matters a great deal for how we understand where we are today uh, in, in you know, the world of journalism, where we've come from, and, and where we might be headed. Thank you so much, Patrick, for coming on today to discuss your book. Again, it's titled Bad News Travels Fast, The Telegraph, Libel, and Press Freedom in the Progressive Era, published by the University of Massachusetts Press. We thank you again for joining us today on the Journalism History Podcast. Thanks, Nick. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. And additional thanks to our sponsor, the College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at jhistoryjournal. Until next time, I'm your host, Nick Hershon, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night and good luck. Good luck.